This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead. Take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. Okay, I'm Chris Avina with American Outdoor News. Today we're here with Steve Lamboy, the um, Senior Director, Strategic Development of Umarex and the CEO of International Cases, which is, of course, the Grainy and Sea-Run Cases. Steve, thanks for coming on. Great to be here. Thanks for inviting. Now, how is it handling both, I mean, two major companies in the outdoor industry? Yeah, well, it's, it's, it makes me very, very busy. Uh, I have difficulty saying no. You know, over on the Umarex side, I perform a, a, a absolutely fun role, which is strategic development, you know, really, really long-term development, which is so much fun. Products that you want to bring out three, four, five years from now, you know, kind of like, you know, field of dreams. If we build it, they will come type of thing. That's just so much fun, you know. And then, of course, on the Negrini side, you know, which which is, you know, of course, my passion as well. Um, I get to do the same thing there, so I, I really have an enviable job. Uh, I just maybe have a little bit too much of it at times, but it's a lot of fun. Now, air guns have come; they they've come such a long way um, in over the years, from just like the Daisy Red Rider to now you could take down African big game. All right, absolutely. And actually it's come full circle in a way because Lewis and Clark, I think had a 69 caliber air gun that they shot bears with and elk and deer and everything else and with a, with a hand pump to pump it up. But yeah, air guns have come you know, a long way, just like everything has. I mean, archery, look at archery, incredible. Good. Those have been made in archery and uh, 
and firearms. I mean, uh, now it's not unusual uh, for a lay person uh, to buy uh, a Ruger precision rifle and, you know, get a one mile badge. A yeah. one mile badge. Think about that. I mean, 500 meters is nothing. Now it's one mile. Okay. You, gotta be, you have to join the mile club. Well, I live in New York. We don't have opportunities to shoot like that. I know you've been in New York and, um, you know, it, if I shoot 50 yards, it's, it's, uh, that's a distance. <laughs> yeah, and you know, I enjoyed that. I love hunting in upstate New York. I mean, I adore it. I hunted the Adirondacks for years, like 40 years. And, uh, well, maybe 30 years. But, uh, you know, tent camp hunting, packing in tents and uh, before the season. And then, you know, walking, uh, you know, three to five miles back in. Uh, you know, and hunting for a week at a time. I love that. Absolutely adored it. Adirondack yeah, hunting is very different than the rest of New York. It's it's thick up there. Yeah, it's totally big. It's totally big. And I, I ended up having uh, several camps uh, that, that I bought or built uh, up in the Adirondacks as well on, on lakes and so forth. It's, it's absolutely beautiful. But yeah, I've, I've, I really enjoy the outdoor industry and you know, there's a, I've been in it for a heck of a long time. I'm kind of an old timer, I guess now. But there's a few, you know, uh, milestones uh, that when I look back. You know, first, when you look back and you think, oh, look at all these great things we did in sales and we got this account and that account. Yeah, those are all wonderful. Those are all wonderful. But there's some real milestones. And the milestones are people that I worked with. I mean, it was really an honor to work with Bill Jordan and the staff at Realtree. Okay, I'm, you know, when I was the VP of operations and licensing, it was absolutely an honor and very unusual experience, singular experience, working for a company that has a trajectory of a rocket. Okay, it was fantastic. And, and there's things that we did there that were legacy things that last today. I'm not talking about developing a camo pattern, but what I'm talking about is in terms of conservation and contributing to uh, our way of life. One of those things was I was part of a team that convinced Walmart. Okay, this is at, at a time when hunting license sales were decreasing. They were losing hunters. Okay, but our studies showed that uh, there were people, kids who wanted to learn hunting, but they didn't have somebody to take them, either single head of household or both parents are just working too much. Sure. Okay? They make ends meet. And I was part of a team that went to Walmart, uh, which, which was Mossberg and Winchester and myself. And we convinced Walmart to open up all those stores to Hunter Ed. All those stores, every one of them. So now anyone in the country could find a place to get hunters at. That was big. That was really a big thing. And it was a big thing for Walmart to do. But they stepped up. I mean, they believed in the space and they stepped up. It was wonderful. Well, it's, it's definitely uh, a lot more room for growth in our industry. Uh, I know our numbers took a little bit of a decline over the years. But uh, I think COVID actually gave us a nice shot in the arm and you saw a lot of people getting back outdoors getting into a tree stand yeah there's a phenomena right now which i would say is 
you know, in the last four years, okay, that is, you know, the field to table, you know, river to table program, which is people wanting to eat more healthy and harvest their own food, that concurrent with COVID and the explosion of the internet has accomplished something in terms of hunter numbers. And one of the things that it did was it enabled people who do not have uh, a farm and a father or, or a friend to teach them hunting, to go online and learn hunting. I mean, people are learning online hunting. They're taking hunters at online. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And that's made a huge difference. It's opened it up, you know, and, uh, you know, uh, shows like Meat Eater and, uh, and many other shows. Okay. Yeah. Even before Meat Eater, there were shows that were doing the field to table program. So that's been, that's been really good. Another thing that, that, that we did, which contributes to this whole thing. Okay. Is, uh, we convinced Ducks Unlimited, which at the time in the 90s was the premier conservation group in the United States. Okay. We convinced them to make uh, Realtree Camouflage, the official pattern. Okay. Now that might seem really self-serving and it sure as hell was self-serving to a degree. But let me tell you what it did. We paid them a royalty on every yard of fabric sold with real tree on it. Wow. And we brought in all of our licensees, okay? All of our licensees, Rocky Boots, uh, you name it, okay? Brought them all in. And they all signed up, okay? And, and uh, bought uh, licenses with DU. That generated major seven-figure income. And understand what it did. We didn't say we want to have this license for 25 years. We said, let's do a three-year deal. And then you put it out with all the other companies. Sure. Let Mossy Oak, let Treebark, let whoever bid on it. Okay. But this is a way that we can fund conservation. Okay. Through sales of products. Let's do this. And uh, they did it. And it really uh, ticked off a lot of conservation groups. Okay, oh. whose names I won't mention, but it ticked them off. But guess what? Now they're all doing that and it generates a lot of income. What's the importance about this income? It increases the sustainable population of game animals, not just ducks, all kinds of game animals. Oh. So it, it, it manages the resource, manages the resource. Without the resource, uh, you know, we're not going to have hunters. That was a multi leveled. Um agreement with yes. tremendous ripple effect across the uh, entire industry. Yeah, I think Mossy Oak has it now. I, I think Mossy Oak is really leading that with um, DU and with uh, NWTF and Elk Foundation and so forth. So there's, maybe it's their turn at bat right now, I'm not sure, but, but it's a great way to generate funding. You know, it's always, and at the end of the day, it's always, the sportsman, okay, who is doing the funding, whether it's through Pittman Robinson or the excise taxes or what have you. Sure, okay. sure. And, you know, it, I, I've seen the industry change over the past 10 years, 12 years that I've been in the industry. You've been in a lot longer. How has the industry changed? How has it grown? Well, of course, with um, 
the advent of, of uh, uh, the internet. It has changed communications uh, a thousand percent. Could never go back to what it was. And back in the 90s, you know, you had, you know, TNN and ESPN and magazines. That's basically what you had, okay? Now look what, what we have, okay? We have your venue right here for one, which is a great way of communicating with public, okay, sure. and interested parties. We have all these different levels, all these different ways to communicate. And uh, what that does is it, uh, it keeps the industry fresh. Think about this. You're from upstate New York. All right. So 30 years ago, uh, you know, or when you started hunting, you know, your, your grandfather probably gave you his Woolrich jacket. Why? It didn't wear out. Buffalo plaid was buffalo plaid yep. in 1940 and it's buffalo plaid in 1990. Okay. Well, guess what? With camouflage and new, new uh, textiles, new types of material, waterproof, breathable, all of this other technical fabrics that are out there, that's all changed. That's all changed. So now, you know, the durable coat, um, you know, you might have three durable coats yeah. okay, in a spring, summer, and fall, you know, and, uh, or spring and fall anyway, in winter. So communications of new products uh, has improved greatly. It's more complicated to do it if you're a manufacturer. Yeah. It's improved greatly. But now you have... Um apps like onyx hunts and things of that nature that just make your hunt so much easier these days uh, yes. and then the introduction of streaming video you had the introduction of the outdoor channel and sportsman's channel now everything's flowing into the streaming video services yes yes and you know pushing the envelope with how to hunt i mean now it's not unusual for somebody to shoot an elk or deer at 400 yards. Why? Well, because we can train you. We can train you online. We can train you at various academies that will train you. You can go to courses on how to shoot long distance. Even in archery, okay, there are people that are shooting uh, uh, you know, consistently, you know, between 50 and even 100 yards. I'm not saying that's for everybody, okay? But if you look at a program, uh, Bomar Bow Hunting on YouTube, Okay, that fellow definitely understands what is necessary to achieve the lethality and the accuracy to do that. And he will teach you how to tune your bows as well. Look at all this information we can get. What can't you learn, uh, you know, on the internet or on YouTube, you know, right now? Now, you've been with various <coughs> companies. You've been around a long time. You've seen the growth and changes and evolution of the industry. What was your favorite trip or uh, working uh, endeavor in the industry? Oh, let's see. Well, there were two things. One was the time that I spent with Bill Jordan, who was, I consider, a mentor uh, at, at Realtree. That was spectacular. Okay. And I'll give you an example. And I have a great deal of respect for the man. You know, he doesn't wear jewelry. He's not into spending, being a wealthy spender and all this kind of stuff, all right? So he took me turkey hunting because I was not a turkey hunter when I went to work there. I was a deer hunter. 
pheasant hunter, grouse hunter, woodcock, whatever, ducks. Um, and so he took me out turkey hunting, all right? And this is what he did. We're in South Texas, and we set up under this, um, this mini oak, the Encinitas Oaks, and uh, he started calling. And he contacted a bird that was about 150 yards away and walked that bird in. Okay, and that, as that bird was coming in, got closer and closer, he said, okay, get your gun out. Get your gun out. I got my gun out, right? I'm all ready to go. And he, and he said, don't shoot until I tell you. He's whispering this, don't shoot until I tell you. So he calls that bird in to about 15 yards. He lets the bird go away. Stop calling. I'm like, what, what are we doing? Bird gets out about 50 yards, he calls it back in. <laughs> Does the same thing. Let's it go away. I'm like, come on, can I shoot the bird? It's a nice long beard, you know. Let's it go out again. This time he lets it go. And he turned to me and he said, it's about hunting, not killing. Never forgot that. The, the excitement for him was being able to pull it in. Yeah, and my heart was beating at you know, a thousand <laughs> miles an hour. I mean, I was like so, so ready to do this. I mean, it was a peak experience that he, he, he made that experience last a long time to teach me something. Yeah. You know, it's about hunting. And he was, he's a true hunter. You could put him in the woods. I don't care who the person is. You put him in the woods, bet on Bill. Okay, but on Bill. Another peak experience was building the Ithaca Classic Doubles, which was starting with a white paper, so to speak, and resurrecting the Ithaca side-by-sides. And we built, oh, by hand, you know, assembling gun makers from, actually from around the world, you know, Germany, England, and the United States, engravers from around the world, uh, we had master engravers there. You know. Unfortunately, their company wasn't successful after 911 and so forth and mm -hmm. issues there. But there's a legacy there. You know, there's a four-year legacy of building this team of very, very talented individuals who built some of the most beautiful side-by-sides that ever existed. Uh, guns that sell for, you know, high multiples of what we sold them for because they're only about 370 or 380 made. And, and the relationships made too. There and at Realtree and other places that I've worked, you know, great, great friendships, great friendships, you know, have been made. And I think that's, that's um, indicative of the nature of this outdoor industry and, and hunting and fishing and, and, the, and the outdoor life itself. You know, we form these relationships that just transcend time and everything else. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, I would rather go hunting and fishing with a friend or with my sons rather than go alone. I've done the lone thing, okay? Alone yeah. in the Adirondacks, alone here, alone there. That's great. Uh, but it's, you know, it's the people that you're with, you know. It's a fun in that duck blind, right? Yeah. Or in the dove field or in the pheasant field, or, you know, in, in deer camp. I mean, what is not to enjoy about deer camp? See, uh, 
my family weren't outdoorsmen. Uh, my my father didn't hunt. He he you know he was a city kid. Uh, my uncle introduced me to hunting, and he was probably the worst hunter I've ever met. <laughs> I don't remember ever sh him shooting a deer. Yeah, but he made the whole experience fun. Uh, the deer camp, hanging out with the guys, cooking breakfast and dinner. That was a big part of the experience. And for me to this day, it still is a big part of the experience, hanging out with my friends. It is. It's, it's huge. You know, one person that I've enjoyed spending time with uh, above many, many others is Chris Dorsey. Okay. Oh. Yeah, and Chris grew up, you know, I mean, he was beating the bush in Wisconsin, hunting uh, partridge, okay, and ducks and uh, so forth. And, uh, you know, has done extremely well, extremely well. He's very talented, he's done extremely well. Yep. Not only in publishing, but also, of course, television. He's done fantastically. Probably number one in the U.S. in terms of outdoor TV by far. And mainstream shows as well. And mainstream, absolutely, absolutely, you know, definitely an A-team person. But if you take a look at his books uh, and his articles, especially the books that he has out now, okay, if you read those books, I mean, talk about a legacy in hunting yeah. and fishing and the outdoors. And it's all about the people that he was with and the times they shared, whether it was in Namibia or if it was in, I don't care where it was, Mongolia, or, you know, a duck blind in uh, Mississippi. You know, it's, uh, it's, when you read that, you really understand the legacy because it's all in the book. Call time is a fantastic experience. Well, Chris has a great story. Yeah. He's, uh, he's been on the podcast. He's also been uh, on the cover of the magazine as well. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. He's uh He's a great story. Um, He's a great story and a contributor to the industry. You yeah. know, I mean, his articles, you know, about uh, gun rights, okay, and a variety of different conservation issues, you know, in Forbes and in all these publications. I mean, he has been a major advocate, okay, and influencer, bringing in many other uh, notable people, okay, uh, to be influencers, uh, on behalf of the uh, hunting, fishing, and outdoor industry. That's that's really big. That's, that's a hell of a legacy. It is. I have a lot of respect for people like Chris who have paved the way for us and, and brought awareness. Um, Larry Roy Zoon. Uh, Larry, yeah. He, I he, love Larry. The day I started my magazine, he emailed me and said, I want to write for you. I said, Larry, I said, I can't pay you. <laughs> I said, I just started this thing. He's like, don't worry about it. Four years later, he still writes me in every issue. God bless him. He is Isn't he great? Uh, an amazing man. And He's an amazing he, man. And I've learned a lot from Larry. I've learned a lot and from his him. time is, I mean, he's so generous with his time. Isn't he? And he gives and gives and gives to the industry. Yeah, he does. Great man. See, that's what this industry is all about. How can you not like this industry, you know? I don't I know like, if you have the same kind of camaraderie in the financial industry. No. I'm not sure you do. Oh, no, you don't. <laughs> you, know. you go to the shows. I enjoy going. I enjoy show season. Um, that's a vacation for me. It's work for me. I get yeah. to see friends and spend time. Yeah. Yeah. So 
I've been very blessed. I'm very, very fortunate. You know, I, I tell everybody I have, I've got high class problems. All my problems are high class. Okay. What's you know. the, uh, what's the most valuable lesson you've learned in the outdoor industry? Most valuable lesson is that I do not know everything. And the more certain I am that I know, more convinced that I am that I know. That means I need to stop, step back, and reevaluate and pause. Now let's that's, talk about that's the most important lesson that I've learned. That and always tell the truth. Yeah, be careful what you do in the dark because it always comes to light. And yeah, and I say this because I've made so many mistakes, okay, uh, through arrogance and, and uh, you know, being young and arrogant and, you know, having a little bit of power and having it go to my head. You know, those are life lessons. Those are life lessons. And I've, I've learned from those. We've all been there. The I, yeah, the more I think I have it figured out, mm, that's probably it. That's a little tell that I need to call somebody else and get their take, right? So, now let's talk about one of my favorite companies, uh, Negrini Cases. Okay. Well, how'd you get involved with them? Well, I actually, go back to the Realtree days. Uh, I licensed them in Europe uh, to produce archery cases, and at the time, they made a fantastic archery case. Um, and, and I fell in love with their process, okay, and the patent and the technology that they have. Because it's the lightest weight case that you can use to protect really valuable items in terms of, you know, air travel. There's yeah. nothing lighter, and that's why I choose by all the Olympians. Um, but they never really uh, achieved a beachhead in, in the U.S. Family-run business very Eurocentric, okay, uh, supplier to all the major OEM accounts. They really were not a marketing or a branding company. So they weren't interested in really, you know, building a brand, hiring reps, and so forth. And, uh, and they built a brilliant business supplying everybody in Europe from Browning, to, I don't know if it's Browning, Winchester, Beretta, Benelli, Franke, Parazzi, Holland and Holland, Blazer, you know, pick one, okay, they're in Negrini cases. And uh, so fast forward to the mid uh, 2000s, uh, I realized that, uh, you know, their, their product was, had advanced really nicely. And my wife was from Italy, okay, Elena McKelly. And, uh, and she knew the Negrini family uh, quite well. Uh, Elena being uh, in the industry there, having very successful consulting business, working with Beretta, Benelli, a whole variety of different companies, all the engraving companies. Mm. And um, so I took note one day that they were not in the United States. So we went over and had a meeting with them and uh, with Franco. And to give you a little background on Franco, he's an ex-Italian Olympic trap shooter was on oh, the team wow. and shot world cup and he developed the he developed the cases uh, because uh, all the other cases were falling apart he was running around the world you know for olympic trap shooting the pan am games and all this other stuff and uh, he was uh, 
Negrini is located in the, in the automotive industrial area of Northern Italy. And, um, and he was, a, uh, was an engineer and he developed this case using automotive crash testing technology to build it. Because in automotive, you want to drive weight out, increase fuel efficiency, but increase protection from crashes in a variety of different directions, right? And, uh, and so that's essentially what the, what the patent on the case is. And I just noticed in the mid 2000s that they weren't available. And I had used them for years to go to Argentina. You know, I had had Pelican type cases that got broken down there they'd throw them off an airplane and it broke the whole corner off. Mm -hmm. You know, I had to use uh, half a roll of duct tape to get it home. And, uh, you know, that type of case and heavy metal cases. And I, I really believed in the case. And uh, so we went over and met with Franco and uh, his kids who work in the company and uh, convinced them that we should be their partner uh, for North America and build a brand. That there's a brand that could be built. You know, nobody knew the Negrini name. All they knew was the silhouette. Mm -hmm. They just knew the silhouette, the, the look of the case, you know, that's, that's all they knew. And so we, we made a deal with them and uh, that's been a fantastic partnership, both in development. Um, they have a brilliant engineer there, Graziano, and Graziano Negrini, and uh, extraordinarily talented fellow. And he is, uh, uh, we worked with him extensively. We updated all the models worked on new materials, uh, new designs, uh, made them extremely efficient. And, uh, and here we are today. So we are, we're doing well in the US, uh, gaining ground all the time. And uh, we don't go into any category, and I'm dedicated to not going into any category, that we can't bring something to the party. If we can't bring a new level of performance or a new level of, of uh, quality, I'm not interested in going. So a lot of people have said, why don't you do soft-sided gun cases? You know, it's a natural for you, you know? Mm. No, no, it isn't a natural. It's an unnatural because there are so many brilliant, fantastic soft-sided gun cases out there. What are we going to add to that? I'm not going to add anything to that. You know, it's just let's, and I don't want to go out and play, let's, let's go play the market share game. You know, that's, that's, that's the, that's the trip for private equity. Let them go do that. I'm and, and that's not your niche. A, a soft case is a soft case. It is what it is. Right. And there's a lot of great cases out there. A lot of great companies, SKB, Pelican and, and whatnot. And they do a good job. They do an excellent job. I mean, Pelican, if I was carrying very expensive, delicate instruments, like, uh, you know, uh, lenses and video equipment and uh, drones, things super fragile <coughs> and extremely valuable, yeah, why wouldn't you use a Pelican case where you don't care about the weight at all? Yep. Why wouldn't you do that? Of course you would do something like that, especially those square cases that they have, they're wonderful. Um, but for a firearm and a fishing rod, okay, you can put in, you can put, and we've done it, you can put your over and under 
in our case and throw it off a 200 foot cliff, okay, and watch it cartwheel down the cliff, crash into the rocks at the bottom. And I will guarantee you that that gun will not be injured. The case will be scuffed up, but it won't be broken. It won't be broken, okay? Oh, well, and that gun will be intact. And we've had, we've had people shooting the FITAS worlds in Spain that had their crown grades Krieg off in our cases and have it run over by the baggage cart. Mm -hmm. Okay. Calling me to tell me that their case had just been run over by the baggage cart. Of course, I did hold my breath until they said, and the gun was not damaged. <sighs> Started breathing again. But <laughs> well, what what I found is it, it it don't only give you the durability and protection, uh, it's plush and luxurious. There's something about when you open it up and you look inside the case, it's like, wow, this is, this is really a high end product. Thank you. For, thank you for saying that. You know, we don't emphasize enough the fact that even though the cases are made out of a composite polymer, they're handmade. There's no automated system for making those cases. Each one is hand-formed, okay, mm -hmm. the outer case and the inner case, okay, they're hand-formed, they're hand-assembled, they're hand-trimmed out, they're hand-assembled, they're hand-upholstered. Leather, uh, Franco, who was in his late 70s, I mean, he's still stretching leather over the outside of these cases uh, where it calls for that, or, or, or on the inside. We, we have you know, luxury cases that are leather in and leather out. They're all made by hand. And, and there's that's, that's no art form in itself. They, they are made by hand. And everything that goes in the case, everything that goes in the case is made in Italy or in Europe. Okay, everything. There's, 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 no, there's no Chinese product in that case. And, and I've talked to them at times. Hey, why don't we get these rubber gaskets, you know, in China? Um, Steve, 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 you, you don't know that, the, <laughs> all right, forget it. So now, so now I, I try to remember John and everybody here, the whole team, made in Italy, 100% by hand in Italy, you know, Italian styling and all the, that. The injection molding is what it is, but... I think this, the Degrini case really is uh, a step beyond that because Thanks. of everything that goes into it. And, um, you know, I, I have some Negrini cases. I, I think they're uh, really a luxury product. I can tell you absolutely truthfully, they have worked with the same designers that work with Ferrari and Maserati. Wow. <laughs> right? because the Beretta group brought them in because that's how they roll too. That's a fact. So they have the benefit of working, you know, all of Italy is some form of art. I don't care where you look, it's just some form of art, you know. It's not like going to Eastern Europe and seeing, uh, you know, rows and rows of, of drab green apartment buildings. Uh, Italy is just all about art and culture and it's, their, it's in their blood. They, you know, when I look at a lot of the cases made in the United States, I think 
um, industrial efficiency. Industrial efficiency. That's what I see, and that's and that's what I think. If I ask the Negrinis, to, hey, can you make this? They'll be like, oh, oh, God, do we do we really have to, Steve? You know, <laughs> they, they that's just can't. It, it's just it's just not attractive, you know. And not that they're not good cases and they're not efficient, you know. I'd never say that. And uh, but uh, the Italians, the Italians are the Italians. They they do what they do. Yep. And they do it very, very well. So well, we're, being one of them, I know what you're saying. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. I mean, we we were we just came back from the factory, and uh, and visiting there, which was really a wonderful time. And we got a, a look at the new thermoformable carbon fiber cases. So to backtrack a little bit, Negrini is known for their forming technology. And they were approached by a major luggage company, oh, I don't think, three years ago, to work with a composite company <clears throat> that made carbon fiber to develop carbon fiber sheeting that would be thermoformable. So all they wanted Negrini to do was to develop the process, which they have done. And, um, and of course, they don't make a luggage and they signed a waiver, we won't make any luggage. But they can make gun cases out of it. Now it's not inexpensive. Uh, it will be some years from now uh, when more and more of it is available. It's very expensive, but if you saw this case, you'd just be going, I've got to have that. I've got to have one, you know? It's just too incredible. It's just gorgeous. I mean, anyway. Well, I, I think outdoorsmen are, uh gear junkies they 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 want the next best thing absolutely absolutely you know it's like the c-run cases and also a lot of the higher end in the green cases i mean there's a lot of c-run cases in the greening cases that are uh, opened up full-time in uh, people's offices okay executives offices so that they can look at their wonderful collection of hardware that they don't have time to use every day. <laughs> I guarantee you that, you know. The C-Run case, that's a fun story. So the, so the C-Run story is, is interesting because it cost me a big apology with my son, Connor. So we were on this fantastic fly fishing trip in uh, Northwest Arkansas really great trip and the boys had had good luck and uh, you know we had to it was time to leave and so we packed up and away we go and we're about 45 minutes away uh, when I asked Connor did he pick up that Orvis fly rod and reel that he left uh, on the bank and lo and behold he had not so I was very upset with him okay because I had I had uh, picked up these two Orvis kits from friend at Orvis from the fly fishing school, you know, and, um, you know, of course I wanted them to keep them for the rest of their lives and covet them and in the memory of me. So anyway, I was ugly. We went back to pick them up and they were gone. They had been taken by somebody and never to be heard from again. 
So I vowed that on the next trip, I was going to take one of our cases, which is a two gun case. It's actually a gun luggage case. One side holds your gear and the other side holds the gun. And I called Graziano and had him convert it. Okay, I gave him a kind of basic design. So we would hold like four to five fly rods, four to five reels, all your gear. I said, we're gonna keep it all together this time. We'll never lose another one. It'll, you know, this will solve the problem, all right? So I, so we go to Whitefish, Montana, and we're fishing Glacier and the rivers up there. Had a great, great trip. I stopped into a couple fly shops. I had to, you know, can't go someplace without buying some more gear. Anyway, I showed them this case and they fell in love with the case. So we came back, I contacted Graziano and um, we started building them and they started selling. And it's the fastest growing part of our business. It's unbelievable. Now we have three or four items in, in the line, covers, we're bringing out other, other, uh, other products. Well, we've hired one of the best um, industrial designers in the fishing tackle industry who's helping us with design and features and so forth. And so, <laughs> and so I had to go back to my son, Connor, all right, and apologize to him uh, for being ugly with him, making him feel bad for forgetting it. And, uh, and I had to say to him, hey, just imagine if I had uh, the maturity and wherewithal to say, hmm, okay, let's just see how this is going to work out. So it actually turned out to be uh, an innovative and, and profitable division of your business. It's a whole new sector of our business. And it's as big as uh, clay shooting and upland combined. I was uh, actually a little surprised when uh, John introduced me to the C-Run uh, sector of the uh, uh, cases. I thought it was a great addition and a very uh, underexplored area. Yeah, just, you know, we got, I, I'd like to say that, of course, it was my absolute genius and experience that targeted this niche that just was but it really wasn't okay. I mean, it was it, an accident. It was an accident. We were, and, and we were blessed. I mean, then after we hired a consultant, you know, to make sure we knew what we were doing, they said, oh, well, you know, you just happened to fit right in this niche where there was nothing available. And um, <laughs> so, you know, and that's, you know, that's a, that's a great thing about life and, and, and working, you know, you work hard every day and you try to make things happen. And then one day the phone rings and it's nothing you ever did. And somebody, yeah, and there's a rainmaker on the phone. That's the magazine, American Outdoor News. It was an accident. It wasn't planned. And here I am four years later. <laughs> yeah, and it's, a fan, isn't that wonderful? And it's a fantastic publication. It's great. You know, it, it's been an exciting endeavor. The podcast that we're on right now uh, was an offshoot of that. Hey, let's start a podcast across market the magazine. Why not? Is that a, a, a mistake? It uh, became a totally separate entity and another hat to wear. But yeah. it's been fun. Right. Isn't it? I, I love my job. I love what I do. I get to meet amazing people and talk about what we all love to do. Exactly. Exactly. You get to meet, not me necessarily, but you get to meet some really 
really, really interesting and, and colorful uh, people. It's like when I talk to Chris, you know, uh, you know, Chris often is talking about uh, the people that he's connected with over the years, you know, and uh, it makes all the difference. It's just, a, it's a beautiful life. It's a beautiful it's life. Really been exciting. In fact, I just got back from Kalispell. Did you? Montana. Yeah, I was there for a conference. Uh, so it brings us to amazing places, probably one of the most beautiful states I've ever been to. And were you up at Poma? Was yes. Poma up there? Yeah. Yeah, great. Great. That's, that's, a, that's a great, that's a great organization. I, we don't do enough with them and we really should. As we get bigger, we probably will. And uh, Lori Lee Dovey retired from there, I think three or four years ago, and she was a dear friend. And uh, that's, that's a great organization. Yeah, Michelle uh, Sherman is the president, and she played a big role in uh, really getting my magazine off the ground. She, is she really? Yeah, she uh, she introduced me to probably sixty percent of my covers. And she's a notable um, uh, e-commerce and uh, uh, you know media maven. So that's you're very fortunate there. She, you know, it, it pays to have friends. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't it? Doesn't it? You know, all, yeah, well, another thing I've learned oh, over the years is just ask somebody when you, when you don't know something. Yeah, you know. <laughs> hey, what do you think about this? There's, there's always, always somebody to ask. There's always, you know, a friend that knows more than you. And uh, even Chris, you know, uh, Dorsey, he's been a... a uh, an untapped source of uh, uh, information that, uh, you know, they told me anytime I need something, just call them up and if they could help, they will. And, you know, it's, it's been an amazing journey. Good. That's excellent. Well, don't stop now. Now, where, where exactly are you in upstate? I'm not upstate. Oh, I'm, where? On, I'm on Long Island. Are you on the island? And, and believe it or not, Long Island has Boone and Crockett deer. I'm aware of that. I'm aware of that. Tell me something. Is there still, there was one area on the island, I forgot exactly where it was, that still had a wild quail population, bobwhite quail. You not, a, not a big area for quail or pheasant hunting anymore. No, okay. They All just right. reintroduced turkey uh, about 10 yeah. years ago, and now the population is to the point where they're probably gonna open a spring season in the next couple of years. Uh, right. But I remember growing up on Long Island where you would see pheasant everywhere. Yeah, pheasants everywhere in upstate New York. Now when you I, was, I was growing up, we didn't even use the dog. We just lined up in a field, you know, uh, after school and, uh, you know, pounded through the goldenrod. Yeah, you don't see them anywhere now. It's terrible. Okay. But, but, yeah. but you do have stripers. We do, and I will be going uh, fishing this Thursday. Yeah, uh, taking you... taking my son out. Um, you know, going out on a charter boat, and I just need something new to put into my cooking section. So I got to go catch some fish. <laughs> so, they're so good to eat. My God, they're so good. You know, I I enjoy cooking. Uh, I you know I think I'm a pretty good cook. And I love game cooking. So mm -hmm. I have the cooking section in the magazine. I've just never featured any fish. Okay. So we're going fishing this Thursday. And 
whatever we catch, that's going to be in the August issues uh, cooking section. Mm -hmm. That's going to be so good. <laughs> it's yeah, uh, I, I, you know, I enjoy it. It's a passion, not just getting out in the fields, cooking what we catch. Yeah. And, um, you know, making it so friends want to eat it too. <laughs> Very so, good. What was your most um, what was your most mem memorable hunt? Oh, memorable hunt. Boy, there's always two memorable hunts, right? It's the one you succeed and the one you don't, right? Yeah. Yeah. I would say that my very first deer hunt, my very first successful deer hunt, I hunted alone. I was 14, mm. upstate New York, and my grandfather, when I was 12, had given me a Ward's Western Field bolt action 20 gauge shotgun. <laughs> okay. Wow. And, uh, and some slugs, okay? And I practiced with a few of those slugs and understood that the gun at about 30 yards shot about eight inches to the right. <laughs> uh, but I had a lot of practice with air guns, so I knew how to compensate for anything. But, so I was, um, you could not hunt alone until you were 16. Yes. But my father uh, said, well, you know, he was at, kind of at the end of his, of his hunting time, okay? And uh, wasn't that interesting? He was more interested in golf at the time. And uh, he said, well, as long as you're going out back and you're going down the railroad tracks and so forth, you know, you, you can go along. So when he said that, of course, you know, I ran the two miles to get Into home. the green light. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, mean, I am gone, you know. I grabbed that gun, an old Woolrich coat, you know, grabbed some slugs, shoved them in my pockets, and it was wet snow on the ground, and I went off, right? And it was undulating uh, property that was overgrown with thorn apples and scrub trees and, and uh, interspersed with some uh, uh, fields. And uh, I came up over this, uh, I came out of the scrub up over this knoll and walked to the edge uh, of this woods, Okay, it was a hardwoods. And I, I, I was on the edge of it, and I looked down and I didn't see anything. And then about 50 yards away, I, I saw a white tail move. And it, and it was a buck and it started running, okay? And uh, the gun held, I don't know, I think it held three shots, okay? And I fired three times. And I knew this woods, and it was a rectangle. And I ran to the end of the, to one end of the woods, and ran up the other side of the woods because I knew it was going to come out of the small woods and try to get into the big woods, right? And uh, I wanted to be there to greet it. And uh, so I ran and, and, I, and I actually beat it uh, to, to the point it was coming out and it fell over dead. Wow. <laughs> over dead. And of course, you know, I was so excited uh, uh, hunting it. I walked up to it and I couldn't see any horns. And I said, oh, my God, I'm dead. They're going to kill me. I am so dead, you know. And I said, well, I can't waste it. I've got to bring it home. So I rolled it over. I had shot one of the horns off. It was a six-pointer. 
Wow. One horn sticking up. And I said, thank you, God. <laughs> and uh, and, uh, and uh, field dressed it to the best of my ability and uh, dragged it out. Hardest thing I had was getting it over the fence and uh, all by myself, but somehow I managed it. And, uh, you know, and as I started dragging it down, down the, uh, I decided I would drag it down the, uh, the empty railroad bed. They pulled the tracks up. The easier way to you know, get it back and uh, on the snow and so forth. And I came to this old railroad depot uh, that was a woodworking shop, okay? And so I've got it behind me, you know, and I'm like trudging, you know, you know and, and this guy looks out the window, right? And the door opened and said, hey, kid, what do you got there? I've, I've got a buck. I've got a buck, you know? And he goes, <laughs> yeah. Where, where are you taking it? And I said, over here to School Street. And he goes, ah, I'll bring my truck around and give you a lift, you know? Oh, great. <laughs> Thank God he did, because I was worn out. Uh, yeah, and it was just such a thrill. It was such a thrill. You know, I hung it up in the garage. You know, my father and his best friend came home, and I opened up the garage door, and there it was, the buck. <laughs> the one side. Of course. Yeah, I mean, I had, you know, I had a shirt made out of the skin. I had to buy another skin because it wasn't enough. And, uh, you know, I had it all butchered up and my mother cooked it. And it was great. Everything was just fantastic. That's so that's, awesome. that's probably my most memorable, memorable. That's great. Well, I, I definitely appreciate you taking the time to speak to us today. And... Uh, we look forward to what's coming next with Umarex and uh, Negrini. And thanks so much for what you do in our industry. Hey, thank you. Thank you. And I hope someday we can hunt together. I hope so. Or do something, right? I hope so. Well, 